No one was harmed in the filming of this sequence. The shit you and your friends do in a pub is what I do and somehow get paid for it. That's my natural hairline there now. Comedians are, yeah, we're very judgmental. I don't really think that the American people are more polarized now than they were 10 years ago. Hey, I'm Mike Sheridan and you're welcome along to another conversation on the Delph. So my guest today is someone I have long admired. John Heilman has been involved with covering politics in one form or another for a long time. He is one of the producers and stars of the excellent series, The Circus Inside the Greatest Political Show on Earth. He's a co-founder of The Recount, which he also hosts an excellent podcast for. And you can regularly catch John on MSNBC giving his typically astute analysis. Look, everybody knows I love talking politics with guests, but very few have the kind of common sense insight that John Holman possesses. So enjoy the chat and make sure to subscribe whether you're listening as a podcast or watching on YouTube. You know, I lived in London um, uh, when I worked at The Economist magazine from 1990-ish to 1990. Well, I worked there until 1995, 1996, but I was in London for for 91 92 93 basically with a little bit of bleed into 94 and um and i went somewhat frequently like i mean you know uh half a dozen times eight times ten times i don't know in the course of the time i lived there and i think i've been back like maybe three or four times since it's been about a decade i think i was last i was at the i was at the i was at the busk i was at the christmas busk um uh, on whatever grafton street um yeah in like 20 13 i think um which was the busk that like sinead o'connor came up and showed up and 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 led the crowd in a very funny version a combination of like a, a christmas version of of nothing compares to you um and um i've been back that's the last time i was there it's uh i used to I'm, i've like edited a few publications here as well and i would always work christmas day because i don't have kids and yeah. it was the one story we could be guaranteed on Christmas Day that you could write. It's like, the guys are on Grafton Street. They're doing the bus, yeah. bus on Christmas Eve. We could do the video the next day. It was great. Totally. I mean, Glenn, I I, I don't know. It's, it's like Glenn Hansard, like a national treasure. Like, uh, you know, like he sort of seems like he should be, right? Yeah, he's really well known. I think like yeah. people love that movie. And like, yeah. John Carney as well is such a brilliant director. He does like, but he's probably not as well revered as he should be, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, people obviously outside because of that movie at the time, he got like a little bit of profile um, uh, here. And um, but I feel like, you know, he maybe it's just my 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 sort of sense of the of the of the busk. It's like, you know, he's a, um, you know, he feels like he feels like very beloved in Ireland. I, I yeah. look, I'm not I don't really know. But I feel like he's like, you know, he's a he's like I, I feel like he's kind of like integrated there's a, a kind of thing about him i don't know the frames are a, a band i used to love and yeah and like um and i and they were never really a band here like people never really knew them and they the couple the few times they ever toured here i always i got people to go um i remember taking a bunch of people to the beacon once they played up uh with damien rice um i know this got me like 10 years ago now um it's been a long time but like i whenever i see him in like video from the from the grafton street thing i'm always like oh you know that guy's like <laughs> You know, he's just, I mean, I don't know, he seems like a good dude. I don't know. I've never met him in my yeah. life. He seems like good, he seems like a good dude in addition to like uh a being being obviously a pretty great musician. It's a, so. it's a nice, it's a nice level of fame, I think, that because people yes, know who right. you are, but people won't approach it unless they're fans, like they're real yeah. fans. So that it's yeah. like almost like that movie director level of fame. 
it's always been like, but it's always been my impression. Like one of the things that I like about Ireland is like, and maybe this is not true anymore. I don't know. But like the few times I was ever in, in Ireland with like that, at that time, I, the story I was just telling a second ago, the few times I was ever in Ireland with you too, it always seemed like weird how like people were just like, we're not going to like, they, you know, they would get a lot more attention here. Like if, 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 if I walked down Madison Avenue here, you know, not now so much, but like, yeah. I'm probably even to some extent now, but back at the peak of his fame, it would have been a mob scene, right? And like, if you were like in a pub in, in Ireland with, with Don Bono, people like seemed like studiously like, we're not going to do that. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to swarm around him. You know, we'll tip our hats. You know, that's about it. Maybe I'll send him a, you know, give me a one. And I say, I like that last tracker. That last album was shite. You know, that's about it. You know, like, but not like, oh, Bono, Bono. You know, no, we like, don't, like, we don't really, we, I think we have too much shame here, John. The Irish, we're just, we have too much shame. It's like anybody who's famous in particular, we generally be like, I know the younger generation is a, is a different thing entirely. But in saying that now, when Obama was here and was it 10, 2010? Yes. Yes. That, they, was, that was, people went bonkers, right? People went bonkers. Yeah. So you interviewed Brendan, no, it would have been around 2010, because you interviewed Brendan Gleeson the next day and he gave this incredible speech. And I have not seen, 2011, I think it was, I've never seen anything like that. That was like a whole other, so the, yeah. like in the political world, these superstars just seem to reverberate more. Well, you can, you can, in a way, it's like the Irish don't have that, you know, um, you know, they're, they're, you, they can let it all, they can let their, their, mo they can wear their hearts on their sleeve for someone like Obama, who's not, although Obama now claims he has some Irish roots. If I believe it was on that trip when he was like, you know, he claimed that, that he discovered there was some black you Irish. Won't, you won't had, believe you know. this. You won't believe this, John. There is a, uh, what would you call it? Gas station in, and yeah. uh, where, near where Obama, where his ancestors apparently are from called Obama Plaza and awfully. And yeah. it's like, yeah. you think it's going to be this like almost team park. You walk in, it's literally just a cardboard cutout of Michelle Obama and Barack Obama. And that's it. <laughs> but there was a lot of fanfare, similar, similar for Clinton as well. And, and Biden's Irish, so we'll take him too. But uh, yeah. the, the George runoff obviously happened last night. That was, was closer than I think people thought it was going to be, was it? I don't know. Like, I, you know, I, I think the the consensus polling, I, I asked somebody asked me the other day what I thought. And I, I generally really avoid prediction because as my favorite political philosopher, the great American baseball player, Yogi Berra, once put it, prediction is always difficult, especially about the future. So, um, you know, I try to stay away from it. But the polling averages had it about three points and like it, it ended up being about three points. I think there was a moment last night where uh, everybody was looking at the county results coming in and saying, Early in the evening, we're like, oh, Warnock's got this in the bag. And then it got tight for a little while. And people started like saying, well, it's closer than people thought. And then it ended up like if you look at the final results this morning, it's a, you know, he won by about three, which is really what the kind of the polling average had it at. And and is not, I mean, if you if you are of the view, as some people are, um, that you know, that Herschel Walker's an utter embarrassment um and and not uh and not fit to be, not intellect, not mentally fit, capable, competent to be a United States senator, the fact that it was that close. Um, you know, is disturbing, I guess, to, to some people. I, you know, think that that Georgia is basically still a Republican state and you can tell that it's a Republican state by the way that Brian Kemp, who, you know, has is a conservative by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but has avoided getting the stench of Donald Trump all over him. And he beat Stacey Abrams by eight points. Like it wasn't close in the governor's race, right? That's basically a Republican state. And and this is, takes nothing away from, from, from Raphael Warnock to say this, but, you know, He's been blessed in both of his races. He's a he's a talented candidate. He's a talented senator. He has a big, bright future in the Democratic Party. But 
he's been, you know, in basically what's still a reddish purple state and not really at all a bluish purple state, let alone a pure purple, let alone a, let alone a bluish purple state, not even a purple purple state. He's basically been blessed with two races, which Donald Trump, you know, was either very actively involved in the, in 2020 when he was, you know, but uh, in the middle of that race, in the middle of that runoff, you know, telling people not to vote uh, early because, you know, it, it would be, it was all rigged, you know, sending a message to Republican voters that they shouldn't really vote because it was a rigged system or, or and in this race where he wasn't actively involved so much, but Herschel Walker was his child. He was, you know, his, his political love child, you know, Warnock had the, had the benefit of that, which basically meant there were a ton of Republican voters in Georgia, the suburban moderate Republican voters who all voted for Brian Kemp. Uh, and 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 looked at Walker in the in the in the initial race in, in in November, and then looked at him again in the runoff, and like said, I can't do this. You know, he's not he's not. I and, and Trump, you know, basically, I'm not saying Trump. I'm not saying sorry. I say Trump gave the race to Warnock, but Warnock was benefited. If, if Warnock had had to run against Brian Kemp um, in either one of those races, you know, he might well have, he almost certainly would have lost, and not because he's not good, but just because Georgia's basically still a Republican place. So, you know, winning by three, you know, solid for for him, and 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 I think sets him up. I'll say, you know, say something nice about him. I think his campaign was very strong, and a, a man who has now won five elections um, in in Georgia in the last few years, uh, and has proven, even with all the caveats I just put forward, has proven that he can win. Uh, at at the statewide level, an eloquent black Democrat uh, who can win at the statewide level in Georgia, which is now like along with Arizona, really the the frontier of American politics, like the the ultimate swing state, is a guy who's going to be in everybody's discussion for a Democratic presidential candidate in whether that's in 2024 if Joe Biden decides not to run, or 2028 when uh, the race will no be an open an open field. That that's a guy who's going to run for president. And he's going to have a he's going to have a decent claim to being competitive given that the democrats are now moving georgia into the into the top tier of their of their primary system so it's going to become a very important state in the democratic primaries and he's going to have a, a very strong case to make that he has the ability to win in, in one of the most important states in the country so you know a star is born in some sense in uh, in rafael warnock as of yesterday there's a bit of a stench of Donald Trump at the moment, though, isn't there? And I mean, all over he, everything, all over everything, the whole so Donald Trump stenches like you know you get from east, west, north, south, uh, all day long, twenty four seven. Yeah, but it's yeah. I mean, look at Oz in in you know in as Pennsylvania as well, like and Walker, they're both you know this is going to follow them forever. They were both, I'm sure they were both doing fine in their respective to, to, careers to to some degree, and now they've both lost elections that were overly hyped to a massive degree i mean look i think uh you know we'll see i mean look herschel walker will will go back to his life i assume and and he'll he'll always be revered as this great football legend in in georgia and he you know he lives in texas basically and he was making a fine life for himself and i don't think i don't think his life will be appreciably worse than when he went down the path of running for senate i think he might think he wasted a year of his life or so um dr oz is a rich man and and he'll be he'll be fine too it's more that like the biggest question in american politics right now is whether the republican party and i mean that in the most broad sense i don't mean like the chairman of the party or mitch mcconnell i mean like the voters in the republican party who are really in charge you know whether people are going to look up and realize that Donald Trump is a loser. I mean, he's a, he's a is someone who has just inflicted electoral damage on the party for years now. It's like you know he cost them the twenty the twenty eighteen midterms. He cost them the presidency in twenty twenty in twenty twenty. He cost them the Senate in twenty twenty. He he didn't help them in, at the House level in twenty twenty. And then in twenty twenty two, everything he touched. I mean, he, he endorsed a lot of candidates who were who were going to win no matter what. 
But in most of the contested races, you could throw Arizona into that into that group. You could throw Nevada into that group. You know, the only win he can really count in in the Senate races was J.D. Manson, and his win loss record in, in in contested tight Senate races was terrible. And you know, if you ask most Republicans um, who are who are familiar with data, they all say Trump is an albatross now for the party. He's he's toxic with with swing voters who decide close elections. And he's not toxic with the Republican base, but he's toxic with the, with the people you need to win if you're gonna win statewide in a lot of states, and it's certainly if you're gonna be a national force. And so, you know, my question throughout the entirety of Trump's uh, Trump era has been, uh, as other people wondered, well, when will the Republicans abandon Trump? You know, uh, when will he go too far? And my answer was always, uh, that will never be the thing. They will never abandon Trump. They have demonstrated that. They, they're like, there's nothing, there's nothing he could say or do uh, that would be so heinous that they would walk away from him. Unfortunately, the, the thing that will cause them to walk away from him, I, I used to say, was when it became clear that the electoral costs, that their personal political interests, were not served by aligning themselves with him. And now that question is very squarely before them. Like, is this is the moment like where you, you can't look at what's happened and not say the smart thing to do is to cut the fucker loose. Um, and yet, you know, there's still a large, you know, he still is the most popular person in the Republican Party with the voters, Republican voters who matter the most. So we'll see uh, what happens over the next year or so. So Trump decides, you know, obviously he said he's going to run. It's probably unclear whether he is going to run or not. But if the Republicans do cut Donald Trump loose, he runs as an independent and he loses anyway because he siphons away some of the vote from Ron DeSantis or Mike Pence or whoever that nominee is. So it's a lose-lose situation for, for the Republicans in many ways. I think it's it's obviously that's a danger. You know, you can't play these games, though, of like trying to lay out the scenarios. Nobody knows. Donald Trump is the most unpredictable force in American politics. Like people say, well, if you, if you cut him loose, he runs as an independent. Does he? I don't know. I mean, as we sit here right now, I don't know a whole bunch of things. Again, going back to my prediction is difficult about the future. You know, we don't know, is he going to be under indictment? Um, you know, he could be plausibly, he could be under under one or more federal criminal indictments. Can you run for office under indictment? You can. Does indictment hurt him or help him with the Republican Party? You know, if you look at the way the Republicans rallied around him after the, the search and seizure at Mar-a-Lago, you would say, you know, it seems to help him with the Republican Party. But is that the case going forward after these midterm elections and the, the electoral costs he's inflicted on them? Or does the party look at that and say, you know, God, it's time, you know, give the guy a gold watch and pat him on the head and tell him that he made America great again and let's move on and look, talk about the future. You know, I don't know. Is he under indictment? What's the effect of the indictments? Um, you know, it, there there's so many unpredictable elements just in the environment. And then there's the unpredictability of Donald Trump's head. You know, I, I, there's no doubt he would. He's as you as you rightly express some skepticism. He says he's going to run. Is he really going to run? Don't know. There's been no rallies. He, he, he just, there's no doubt. There's no doubt he would. There's no doubt he'll threaten to run as an independent if if he were if he were to lose the Republican nomination. But will he actually do that? Will there be money for him uh, among donors? Would he? He's not going to spend any of his own money to do anything. So like if there's if the money dries up because say the Republican voters choose Ron DeSantis or choose you know, Mike Pence or choose, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mike Pompeo or anybody else, Dickie Haley, you know, if the money dries up and the donor class walks away from Trump, is Trump going to self-fund an independent campaign? I'll tell you, that's the one answer I really can predict. The answer to that is no. Donald Trump's not going to self-fund anything. So I think in the end, if the part that, you know, this is one of those things where at some point you have to, if you're a Republican and you, and you have come to the conclusion 
even if you have no principles, you have no soul, you have no concern about democratic values, you have no concern about constitutional norms, you just care about winning, you have to look and go, you know what? Yeah, maybe in the worst case, it is a lose-lose cycle in 2024. But at some point, we got to begin the process of, of getting rid of this guy because we have to find a way towards the future where we can win nationally again. And Donald Trump has proven you know, in two successive national elections, he can't win a majority of the popular vote here. He just can't. And he's getting less popular every day. So if the party wants to eventually be a party that could win 51% at the presidential level, they're going to have to move past Donald Trump. That's that's going to have to happen. And I know some of them just wish he'd be struck down by lightning or hit by a bus. But, you know, um, you know, that's something you can't count on either. And it's, you know, conversely with the Democrats as well. Biden seems like he's weighing up whether he's going to run or not. And I know you'd said previously as well, that'll be a couple of months. He'll, be, he'll say he's going to do it on this day, and then two two months later, he'll say he's going to run. Is there an inkling you think that Joe Biden will run again for a second term, despite saying he'll be a transitional president? Because one of the main reasons being there's no other frontrunner. Kamala Harris doesn't seem to be popular at the moment in polls. Pete Buttigieg is somebody who's been muted a lot. But you're essentially then going to have a very messy primary like the last time in, in 2020 where there was 20 something candidates all tearing strips off each other. Yeah. I mean, I don't think any of that matters in this, in the, to Joe Biden. I think what yeah. matters to Joe Biden is, is, you know, I, I've known the guy for a very long time. I met him in 1986 um, uh, when I was still in college. And, uh, and the one thing that's the only thing you can say about Joe Biden, the most important thing you can say about Joe Biden is that what he has done for his entire adult life is run for office. That's all he's ever done. It's said the only thing he's ever, the only thing he knows. He runs, he's run for things he's won. He's won for things he's lost. He's run for things where he's tried to drop out. He's run, he famously unsuccessfully tried to run for president a whole bunch of different times and then and then finally got it together and and won. You know, I just like it's I, you know, there's there's old dogs and and new tricks, and and like for him, not running would be a new trick. And and you know, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And Joe Biden is a politician to his core. So that's the first thing to note, I would say, you know, obviously age catches up with all of us at some point. Um, I don't personally believe it's ever going to catch up with me because my my doctor tells me I'm a space alien. and I'm going to live to be 230. But um, but other than that, it does catch up with the rest of us. And so, you know, does Joe Biden eventually um, does he yield to age? I mean, look, there's no one who watches the guy uh, go about his business every day now who doesn't recognize a, a that, that the man is, is, I, I say this not in a harsh way, just a fact he's showing his age. Everybody who gets, you get to your 80, if you're 80 80s, year old, yeah. people, people who get into be there to be 80 in that, that general zone, they tend to start to look a little old, look old, act old, be old. They are old. They're starting to get old. Right. And, you know, I know, um, I know, a few ex-presidents. Um, and, and, and if you were to get Bill Clinton, Barack Obama and George W. Bush and put them under sodium pentothal, they would all say, I couldn't have been a good president in my seventies. I wouldn't have wanted to, I wouldn't want to run for president in Obama's case. He's looking forward, you know, but you know, they like, I would, I would be a terrible candidate in my seventies and let alone my eighties. You know, if Joe Biden wins the presidency again in 2024. And if he finishes this term, he'll be closer to 90 than 80. He'll be 86 when he finishes his second term. I mean, I don't know if you've known anybody 86. 86 year olds, like, you know, the most, the ones who are most with it, most clear eyed, most clear minded are just, you know, they get tired easy. They're not like, they're not at their best. They're not what they were when they were 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. And so I think people who love the Democratic Party and love Joe Biden and are grateful to him and fans of his, 
I get asked by Democrats every day, like, you know, they watch him walk across the South Lawn and they think he looks like my granddad, you know, like, is he okay? Is that the best guy to be leading the ticket? And I think, you know, Joe Biden hears that, you know, um, I think he hears it. And I think he, he obviously, he lives in his own body. He knows what he's going through and he, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He knows what he's where, what, what his status is, but there's also this part of him that, you know, if, if Ron Klain, his chief of staff or Barack Obama, um, sat down with them and said, you know what, you, you, you saved the country, you beat Donald Trump, you did an incredible things you accomplished, you passed these giant bills, you know, you had a really good midterm and you know what, like, it's time for you to take a break. You know, it'd be better for you. It'd be better for your life, your life, your longevity, be a granddad, like just take some time and like, and pass the torch to somebody else. He would, um, I'm, I'm speaking here metaphorically, not literally, he would call, he would say, hold on for a second. Can I bring the White House staff in here? Um, the old executive office building, uh, West Wing, East Wing, uh, congressional staff. How many people do you want to get in the room? Okay, how many people could fit? 2,000 people. Let's get them all here. Let's open up the White House. We'll bring everybody here. Okay, everybody. Hi, I'm Joe Biden. How many people here have, uh, have beaten Donald Trump uh, for president of the United States? I don't see any hands. Um, Barack, you? No. Hillary, you? No. So I'm the one person who ever beat the guy and saved democracy by beating him. And now you're going to tell me that like that like you have any say in this? Fuck you, basically. You know, I'm I've earned the right to make this decision myself. And and I I pre I mean I don't really appreciate your advice, but I'm going to decide for myself. And 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 I think the truth is that having had a very successful midterm that no one predicted, like. No one thought the Democrats would gain seats in the Senate and, and do as well as they did in the House. And having had a very productive two years in office and seeing Donald Trump saying he's going to run again. So one of the things that Biden believes is that he's like best and maybe the only person who can still beat Trump. I think as you sit here today, he's more inclined to run than ever. That doesn't mean he's going to run. You know, he's going to go and talk to his family. He's going to, you know, do a bunch of things. It's going to take months, I think. We're not going to hear from him in December or January or probably February. I imagine it'll be, if he says he's going to tell us in March, it will be May because he's a, he's a terminal uh, a procrastinator on these things. But eventually he's going to, you know, he's going to make this decision with Jill. And, and I don't know how it's going to come out, but I'll tell you, sitting here today, if they had lost 60 seats in the House and, and lost control of the Senate, and he'd suffered a massive repudiation. There's no one who can tell me that he wouldn't have had a negative effect. And he wouldn't have thought, you know, maybe the voices of the, the party, everyone in the world saying you got to not run, it would have an effect on him. It would have had effect, a decisive effect. I don't know, but it would have had an effect. But right now he's on top of the world. Um, and so yeah. I think the odds of him running are much higher than they were, you know, a month ago. Uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer, John. I appreciate the yeah. time. But before we go. There's been this strange weaponization of the culture wars, and I think culture and politics have crossed over in a way that we've never really seen before. Like a lot of, I think, particularly Republican uh, politicians are using the culture wars to become popular in politics. I looked at it. John Kennedy gave a speech. I don't know if you saw it. Um, it was last night or the, yesterday or the day before where he's talking mm -hmm. about kale and this notion of elites and their elites. Like John Kennedy went to Oxford <laughs> And he's, know. you know, he's playing a fool essentially to become popular. Is like when did this happen, and how did it become so um, rampant in the Republican Party in particular? Do you think? I mean, it's not a new thing, and the notion of like of of Republicans, for example, talking attacking the New York Times and you know the, attacking the media, the liberal media. That's you know that's been going on my entire career. It's obviously more intense now than it was before, but it's it's gotten more and more intense over time. Um, you know, the idea of of 
flyover country as they you know as people sometimes call it red america uh harnessing a uh a, a grieved a, a grievance and and resentment towards the cultural elite in hollywood on wall street uh uh, in, in the university class, you know, in the academic class, that again, it's not, these aren't new things. Um, they are much more intense now and they're much more, um, they're much more etched in sort of stone where there really are like two Americas. It used to be, you know, John Edwards, when he was campaign for president, talked about the two Americas and he was talking about like in the classic kind of the, the rich versus the poor sense. And now it's the two Americas are like, the, their culture is this red America, blue America divide. And, you know, the most popular television show in America right now is a show called Yellowstone that like mm -hmm. literally no one on in, in California, uh, no one on the, on the like, no, I mean, literally, but you, you could live in New Manhattan. You could ask 400 people on the street if they ever watched Yellowstone. They have no idea what it is. And and yet it, in large parts of the country, it's like, it's a cult of shows and, you know, 13 million people a week watch the thing. Uh, it's, and, and yet, you know, and then there's people here who watch Succession and, 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 and and people in Arizona or people in Texas have no idea what succession is. Um, so it's like it's like there's a, this is a small trivial example, but that you know the the thing that's most so the, the divide is there. The, the 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 I think what's interesting is that culture in a lot of ways has that sense of cultural division, which has always existed, has become central. Which is to say, like people out in a, in most of America. Like they don't really, other than, I mean, kind of there's like Democrats and Republicans all kind of have a dismal view about Washington, but like policy isn't really what divides people in a really intense way anymore. This sort of sense of like Republicans have, have harnessed this kind of um, reactionary view about things that are genuine and in a lot of some cases, genuine excesses on the left, like woke culture is invited a lot of this. And, and I, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm an egalitarian to my, to my core. And I think that marginalized and, and groups that have been fucked over for a long time, that like big efforts need to be made to, 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 to remediate those, those, those situations. But when, you know, when people lecture, um, when people get on their high horses and lecture people about pronouns, that's where you get Herschel Walker saying stupid shit. Like, I don't get this pro like, what's a pronoun. It's like, well, let me, let me take you to, 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 to grammar class. I mean, a pronoun is, let me explain that to you, Herschel. But the notion that like, you know, see they, you know, there's a lot of America that sees people who on their, their bios and their profiles who say, you know, my pronouns are he, him, his, you know, and they go, you know, they feel as though like the cultural elite is forcing a kind of stultifying conformity on people, making people talk a certain way. And if you say the wrong word, you're going to get yelled at. If you ask a question about like transgender uh, athletes, like, you know, if you ask a question, somebody yells at you and says that you're uh, that you're transphobic. You know, there are transphobic people. There are people who hate trans people. They shouldn't do that. But there are also like people who are who, who in the Democratic Party. And this is what Barack Obama has been talking about when he went on the, the pod Save America thing and said, you know, Democrats have, have a propensity to be killjoys and we can't constantly be scolding people all the time when they make just honest mistakes. They're not these are not all people who, who make an honest mistake with a use of a pronoun or ask a question about transgender athletes or, or, or raise questions about all kinds of things. They're, they're not necessarily racist or homophobes or bigots. And they, and then, and scolding them and hectoring them and lecturing them a alienates people who might be on your side on other things, but B also fuels this thing that you saw with John Kennedy the other night, which is the kale thing is kind of funny, but that's what this is all about is kind of this, you know, 
they they are enforcing political correctness on us they are telling you that you're wrong they're telling you that you're racist they're telling you you're homophobic they're telling you you're you're misogynist they're telling you all these things that they they the cultural elite are the ultimate enemy and and like i say i think it's you know it's self-defeating in a lot of ways for democrats who should be fighting for progressive causes but sometimes their tactics are self-defeating in the sense in both senses they fuel that anger on the right and they also alienate people who would otherwise be open to progressive causes when it's like hey you know what like i'm i'm sorry i didn't say they you know when you're i know i'm supposed to say they about you because you're you're transgender but like i'm not used to that's not the way i grew up talking that way i you know i, I say it myself it's like i yeah. you know plural applying a plural pronoun to someone i, I want to be respectful but i also i you know i grew up learning english the way that it used to be taught which is that you know singulars are singulars and like it doesn't make me transphobic it just means i sometimes make mistakes and, and and I think that is what Republicans are preying on in a lot of cases. And it's certainly a lot of the power that Trump had was, you know, this sort of you would meet people back in 2015, 2016 who would say to you, I know I don't like that he's racist. I don't like that he's that he's sexist. But I also know that, like, he's he's so the stuff he says is is you wouldn't say that shit if you were just like if you were trying to be careful, you're saying He's he's being who he really is. And I value that on some level, even if some of the things that he is are things that I don't like. And I'm really sick of people telling the, of what we see as political correctness. I'm really sick of people telling me how to talk, how to think, how to be. And Trump harnessed that in, in a very powerful way. And now it is very much, I think you're right. It's very much at the center of of what Republicans do now. It's like they don't they don't campaign on policy. You know, they don't campaign on like, it's not about tax cutting anymore. I mean, they do want to cut taxes. It's not about regulation, but they do want to do those things. But when they go out and make their pitch to voters, it's basically not about like big government versus little government or big taxes versus low, high taxes versus low taxes. Or it's really just about us versus them. And it's like, I don't know if Ireland, I mean, look, you guys had a long sectarian conflict that was all about us versus them. And it, when it led, and I often cite it to people when people say, when I express my worries about political violence in this country, you know, I'm like, you know, you go look at the at the literature about talks about the, the 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 sectarian violence between the Protestants and Catholics. It was like most of the country weren't violent. It's like like there's a tiny little sliver of people who are willing to take up arms, and they cause massive chaos and division. You know, in that in your country for a long time with a very tiny. You know, the IRA was a tiny little thing, and the people who are who are affiliated with or sympathetic to the IRA was a tiny sliver of the population. But you get just a tiny sliver who is willing to accept violence as a as recourse and you can have t terror for for decades for generations and that's where i fear that we're headed and and what january uh january 6th like made everybody afraid of hopefully we're going to course correct on that but you know i think the irish have something the irish experience has something to teach people because political violence is is always uh it's way more uh, damaging and destructive than some people are willing to acknowledge. And it's also, it, it doesn't take much, you know, of a society to embrace political violence to, to throw the whole society to disarray. And I think that's where people say here, well, it's only a very small, uh, very small fringe. And I go, yeah, but a small fringe, a small committed fringe can really fuck things up for everybody else pretty quick. And that's, you know, I, and I, I remember, you know, I look back on Ireland that, that period, I was like, I lived in London during when that was still happening. I'm like, you know, I remember when these shut the tubes down, the tube down, like, uh, once a month when I lived in London because it was a, a bomb threat and you know not great you know let's no. try to stay away from that is my is my is one of my one of my main core messages sure. it's like it'd be better if we didn't do that let's not go down that path 
that's fair. That's fair. I saw Adam Kinzinger saying the same thing to Jordan Klepper, where it was the first time it kind of occurred to me is that, yeah, this is before the midterms, is that, like, this is what a civil war will look like. It will look like Northern Ireland in the 70s and 80s, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I don't want to keep you any longer, John. I really appreciate the time. Um, yeah. I'm a big fan of the circus, I said to you, but they need to figure out how to get it on Paramount Plus here. I can only, I'm back and forth, I'm making a documentary at the moment, so I'm back and forth from the States, and I'll binge it when I'm there. But What's the doc? What's the doc? The, making a doc, it's called Over the Edge, so it's on conspiracy theorists and people who fell down a rabbit hole during COVID, and yeah. then find themselves like consuming conspiracy theories without realizing it, and that's, yeah. what, that's what the edge is. So we're over interviewing John Brennan in D.C. in January. That's the plan, oh, and I want, yeah. we wanted to get to a Trump rally but he's not announcing any. So we're sitting yeah. like waiting or we, yeah. we got a visa sorted. Well, um, it sounds like an interesting doc, number one. Number two, um, uh, you know, uh, from your lips to God, God's ears, I'm, I'm for uh, I'm for the circus appearing on as many uh, platforms in as many countries as possible. Unfortunately, that's way above my pay grade. You know, I you know there there is the is the, is the, is the VPN solution not available to you over there? Have you not figured it out? It is. Like, well, that, yeah. You you, yeah. you can, but like it's it's you have to go through Apple and all that shit. But like, so I binge yeah. it. So I haven't seen the last episode of the circus. And I love the show. Oh, we're, we're, gonna, we're probably going to rip you off a little bit for the documentary. I'm not going to lie. Okay, that's fine. That's you know, since as I say, you know, great artists. Uh, what is it? Good artists copy and great artists steal or whatever. Um, <laughs> borrow and go steal. I know. Go ahead. You know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So uh, that's that's great. You should really check out. You know the the finale of the show. You know, it's always when we do these finales, especially in an election year season finales we you know we do the hour um it's always we you know we really we really throw our backs into those and um this one uh features a couple surprises including me getting COVID in the middle of the episode and um and i was having to get through i was having to get through that um but it's pretty uh it was pretty great i mean i i i mean i'm proud of the show every episode we make but those those hours uh, when we have an election, there's always they're always uh, they're always an extra special uh, thing if you're a circus fan, and and we really love the way this one came out despite um, certain difficulties that presented themselves along the way. Partly we we like it because like you know at the end of the episode you'll see we talk about this. It's like you know since January sixth, I think you know people who are on what I think of as Team Democracy, you know not not the blue team, not the red team, but like you know for the survival of, of American democracy and 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 for the survival of democracies in all the Western countries. But you know we've all been on edge. You know like we didn't we didn't know what was going to happen the next time that an American election happened. The Mexican people went to the voting booths and and you um, you had all these election deniers running all over the country. And and so you know it's part of why the last episode is is lovely in a way is that. Um, you know, those guys got beat, you know, they got beat pretty soundly, you know, the election deniers did not have a good, did not have a good day. And there are still obviously members of Congress who, who voted to decertify, but the out front election deniers who ran for governor, ran for secretaries of state, ran for attorneys general around the country, basically got beat, you know, top to bottom. And the ones who were actually were actually at the Capitol on January 6th, that got beat. And the ones who said they wouldn't, they wouldn't concede or wouldn't, or, or, or cast doubt on whether they would concede. You know, I give, we give credit to him. It's like, you know, Dr. Oz, you know, it wasn't clear he was going to concede if he lost. He conceded that night. All of them did. Like the ones who were all kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know. We'll have to see the outcome. Has, has Carrie other Lake Car- conceded? Has she? Other, other, than, other than Carrie Lake. <laughs> uh, other, than, other than Carrie Lake. But I mean, you know, look, I mean, you know, she's the, the I, I, you know, I, I try to see a little bit of the bright spot here. The bright spot here is that, you know, um, again, I say this not in a partisan way, but, you know, the election deniers got beat uh, and, and, and with a couple of notable exceptions, the other ones 
accepted their defeat gracefully and acknowledged that they lost. You know, even Herschel Walker was asked Last about night, it, yeah. Joe Biden. You know, he said he said Joe, Joe he'd said in, a, in an earlier debate, he said Joe Biden was the rightful president of the United States. And then last night he started talking about the Constitution and that, you know, that there were bigger things at stake than his own race. And, you know, I'm not I've been a pretty harsh critic of Herschel Walker, but it was nice to hear him say those things. And, you know, and these that's this is it's small. It's it's small. These are small <laughs> victories, but, you know, small victories eventually hopefully get you back on the path towards uh, being a normal country again, which is what we'd like to be.